Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 342nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Nancy Hetrick. Nancy is the founder and CEO of Smarter Divorce Solutions, a consulting firm based in Phoenix, Arizona, that provides financial expertise to individuals and couples, and sometimes mediators and attorneys, going through the divorce process. What's unique about Nancy, though, is that after going through her own do-it-yourself divorce process and then discovering after the fact that none of it was enforceable after her ex-husband chose not to comply with the agreement, she decided to become a divorce expert herself to help other women avoid the same fate. And in the process, scaled her divorce practice as high as 18 members and a million dollars of annual revenue just in divorce fees on top of growing her RIA to 65 million of assets under management when her divorcee clients inevitably needed help with rollovers and investment implementation after the divorce was finalized and they received their settlements. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Nancy overcame her initial imposter syndrome and went from finding attorneys to be a little threatening to realizing that they're just regular people and don't necessarily know a lot about finance by recognizing how important her own lifetime experiences were. How Nancy also did expand her technical expertise by earning not only the CDFA credential, but also became a master analyst in financial forensics with a matrimonial specialization and a certified divorce coach too. And how Nancy grew her business in the divorce niche through networking events, not to connect with individuals going through a divorce, but rather simply to build relationships that positioned her as an expert who, in her terms, provides individuals and couples with a kinder, gentler, and much more affordable divorce with people who could then refer Nancy to their own friends and family who might be going through a divorce. We also talk about how Nancy explains the value of her divorce planning work to prospective clients and what she actually does to earn her fees on a divorce case. The steps that Nancy took to begin to scale her divorce practice as she built her reputation and the volume of clients grew, and how Nancy ultimately decided that the responsibilities that go along with being the CEO of a growing RIA and divorce practice, from managing a growing roster of employees to dealing with compliance paperwork, was just not for her, such that she eventually decided to fire most of her staff, sell her RIA, and just focus on the divorce work as a solo practitioner, and is now happier and has better take-home pay than when the business was much larger. And be starting to listen to the end, where Nancy shares how, in reality, there are so many subspecializations within the divorce planning niche that she wants to develop a national directory to help prospective divorcees find the exact right divorce financial planner. Why Nancy suggests that despite the depth of specialization that's necessary to work in the divorce space, the best approach is simply to dive in and use client cases as a form of on-the-job training. And how Nancy found her own happy place by just focusing on the divorce work she enjoys the most, both doing it directly with clients and now training other CDFA designees to build and run their own divorce practices more effectively, and let go of the rest that she just didn't enjoy. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Nancy Hetrick. Welcome, Nancy Hetrick, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm really excited to 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 have today's episode and to get to talk a little bit about. So as I as I frame it, like I I've long said, I think the future of the business for most advisors is that 
we have to have some kind of of niche or specialization in the future. Just like, frankly, some way to differentiate against the the mega firms out there that are going to do probably relatively basic financial planning at scale. But like, they're going to say they do financial planning for everyone. And if you want to show up in some way that wins you business against something, someone that's got like national scale and can run Super Bowl commercials in their spare time, like you have to have some way that you that you show up differently. And often I kind of use the words niche and specialization sort of interchangeably, but I've actually always thought of them differently that a niche is much more about like a particular target clientele that you're going after that has a, a certain common need that you can solve. Whereas a specialization is much more about a personal expertise, like people come and seek you out. You know, Ed Slot's the IRA guy. You got an IRA problem, you send an email to Ed and he knows what the answer is. Like that's that's the thing. That's the deal. And you know, some domains kind of share a, a version of both. And I, I know you have grown very successful business over the years focusing into divorce, which I almost think of as a little bit of each. There's a very specialized body of knowledge of what you actually have to do to help people through a bunch of the technical and money-related issues of divorce, which kind of fits a specialization. And there's also just a subset of people who have a very concrete, specific need, like I'm going through a divorce. There's all these complexities. There's all these challenges. I need someone to help me through this. And so it, it it's kind of the a combination of the two and who it serves and the specialization that it brings. And I've seen a number of advisors that have been very successful with this, but only a limited number that seem to focus there. And so I know you have done this. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation today, both just to understand like this divorce niche specialization as you've built successfully in it and just what that business looks like. And, and I'm hoping maybe even a little bit of a conversation, like why don't more advisors focus here as well? Because it seems like there's a real opportunity. Oh, there's a huge opportunity. And that's actually why about five years ago, I started teaching and training financial advisors how to do this divorce niche practice. Because a lot of them are really interested in it, but most of us were never really taught how to grow a business from from mm -hmm. nothing. So they'll get their credential, but they don't really know what to do with it once they have it. Well, and what's even the credential? Yeah. I mean, most of us, we start with CFP certification, which I mean, like there's a chapter or two in right. one of the books, but like not necessarily enough. I want to hang my shingle on that basis. Right, right. Well, and then you once you get into the get into the work, you find out that there's multiple. But the the primary one is the certified divorce financial analyst, uh, which is a credential given through the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts. And I know you know you you've been a, a keynote speaker at one of our conferences, and so th that was the first credential I got. And then as I started to get into the niche and do the work. One of the things I'd learned was that attorneys in, in my market, which is Phoenix, Arizona, don't really aren't familiar with that credential. They don't really understand what a CDFA is. And so the attorneys here had been kind of hardwired programmed that if they needed financial support in a divorce, they would get the forensic accountant. So about two years in, when I learned this, I said, well, okay, I'll go get a forensic credential. <laughs> so oh, I also, yeah, so it's a master analyst in financial forensics with a matrimonial specialty. There's a mouth, mouthful for you. Master, I want to make sure, master analyst in financial forensics. 
with a matrimonial specialization. Yep, exactly. Okay. And that is where I learned some of the higher level skills that equipped me to be do expert witness testimony, tracing work, fraud, you know, fraud work, marital waste claims, you know, really in-depth analysis of stock options, RSUs, and various kinds of executive compensation. And uh, so there's so there's that credential. And then a lot of the advisors that specialize in this area end up getting trained in mediation and collaborative divorce. And because we are a whole bunch of left brain, number crunching math people, you realize pretty quickly when you start doing this work that we are woefully unprepared for the myriad of emotions that are going to come and smack you right in the face. So I went and did the certified divorce coach training so that I could come to the table with a more holistic, whole human kind of approach. Certified divorce coach. Yeah. Okay. And that's actually recognized by the American Bar Association as a viable team member in an alternative dispute resolution, so an out-of-court process. Okay. So it's, so it's a pretty formal deal. And it I, in my ignorance, thought, oh, it's one of these little life coaching classes. How tough, how difficult could it be? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It was four months virtual learning, and I had to dedicate about 15 hours a week. It was a lot. Wow. And it really did help with just having some tools to bring to the table. And, you know, fast forward 12 years into this business, I've had hundreds of hours of mediation training. I do actually work as a mediator and neutral financial expert at the same time for couples. And I really built a business around a a different kind of a divorce process with no lawyers, no judges, and no courtrooms. And when I put that kind of offer out into the marketplace, guess who showed up? Baby boomers in the target market for every financial planner, right? I was getting 20, 30, 40 year marriages where they're they're working together. They don't want to waste a lot of money on attorneys for no reason. They really just want to make sure they're both going to be okay. And they have a lot of financial stuff going on. So it was really shocking to me when couples started showing up with no attorneys and saying, can you just help us figure this out? And I got to tell you, it was the best work I'd ever done. And so I just really dove deep on on that side of the process. So help us understand what what this what this looks like in practice, it, 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 if we're talking about, because I'm not even sure what you call it. Like I was, I was going to characterize this as divorce financial planning. Like, is is that even an, an appropriate label, or or do I do I need to think of this as something different? That is that's a very appropriate label. Most commonly used label is okay. divorce financial planners, and that's like the that's the that's the tip of the iceberg. Right. And then 
for those that really get serious about this, like, like I have, the forensic stuff comes. And then there's another layer where you could be a mediator and another layer where you can bring in simple financial coaching, you know, just budget work and, and financial empowerment for that, that non-CFO spouse. So it's a, it's an incredibly diverse niche. What I find is one of the most common misperceptions of a financial planner that says, I'm going to build a niche in divorce, is they don't really have any idea up front that there's actually about 10 different ways, 10 different niches within the niche of divorce. And so in my my basic training program, the first thing we do is get clear about who who do you want to be in this in this market? Do you want to be only working with people that you're advocating for? Do you want to be a neutral working with couples? Do you want to do expert witness testimony and deal with lawyers all day long? Or do you want to stay away from that and specialize in a different area? So there's actually many, many different ways to show up in this niche. And it's kind of important up front that you decide where you want to fall because the marketing, the business plan, the growth model is completely different depending on which area you want to focus. So so start by painting the picture for us of what your your practice was or is that you that you built to. What was your version of divorce financial planning? Well, it certainly has evolved over the 12 years. Uh, so I got I went independent from a, a large broker dealer. I went independent in 2011. And I was blessed and fortunate that my core family of clients followed me. And so I secured my base income very quickly as an independent advisor. And, and go ahead. And out of curiosity, like just what was the context of the switch to to out of broker dealer to the independent RA channel. I mean, was it literally around divorce like you wanted to do it and couldn't do it there or were you leaving for other reasons and then had both. to set a new journey? It was both. I had actually gone through my divorce in 2007. Okay. And did not want to waste money on attorneys. We actually ended up doing a do it yourself divorce. And I fancied myself a brilliant financial advisor. So how difficult can this be? I understand it all, right? And I keep in mind, again, it was 2007. And I had one primary home and two rental properties. Mm -hmm. And they had both, all those properties, we were just at that very front edge of the, the Great Recession and the real estate collapse in Phoenix, Arizona, where we were absolutely hit one of the two two places in the country that was hit the hardest. And I made so many mistakes in the do-it-yourself paperwork by failing to protect myself that 30 days after that divorce was final, when my ex-husband shifted from guilt over the affair that he'd been having to anger and was angry with me for the next 10 years and started, you know, 
making up his own rules, I had absolutely nothing that was enforceable. So the two properties that he kept, we the agreement was we would both refinance by the end of the year. I did. He did not. And then he was not able to refinance and let both properties go into foreclosure with my name on them. And there was nothing I could do about it because I was not properly protected. So through that period, I went, man, I, I learned about the CDFA credential and I thought, I really want to help people not make these kinds of mistakes. And I went to my firm at the time and I said, hey, I'd like to do this credential. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. That's a whole weird, risky legal area that we are just not really interested in. How about you pick something else? <laughs> oh, right. I guess it's from the BD realm. Like, if you're going to do this and charge fees in this, they have to oversee it, which gets challenging when you literally know more about divorce than than they do. Like, just if you're an expert who still manages to make a mistake, they don't even know how to oversee you to make sure that you're not making a mistake. Correct. Correct. And the reality is the work that you do as a divorce financial planner is a non-regulated activities. The most successful divorce financial planners do it as an outside business activity and not part of either their RIA or the broker dealer. Now, because you're not you're not literally getting paid for investment advice, which would trigger your RA registration. Correct. And, you're, and it's not pursuant to a sale of a product, so you don't need a FINRA license. So it just shows up as an as an OBA. Still, char- I guess, still charging fees, but like you're charging fees in your outside divorce business. You're not charging fees in your RIA. Correct. Now there are though a boatload of RIAs. And some broker-dealer hybrids that will not allow the outside business activity, but they will allow you to do it within the firm, but it's subject to all of the marketing rules and regulations of the firm. That's a really difficult space to do this work. Hmm. A lot of people are trying, and and I I have to give kudos to Ameriprise. Ameriprise has come a long way. And endorses the CDFA credential, lets the advisors use the specialized software that exists for our field, and even will let them do expert witness testimony. And as of this time, will not allow an outside business activity. Interesting. So I guess it's obviously from the company's end, I mean, like nothing nefarious, like if it runs through your business, that also means they get their grid piece of it like you're doing advice fees we we get our piece for our uh for our oversight then they have to oversee it and support it but just um i'm envisioning like they do get to participate as well at that point but they're allowing it correct correct and so i mean i've worked with a lot of advisors that frankly end up leaving a broker dealer situation to to specialize in this work because it's working, but their platform just isn't cooperating with them right. to let them do it, and they're not at Ameriprise that's been more hospitable to it. Yep, exactly, exactly. So so I always started from day one with an outside business activity. So I have a, my financial okay. I have my financial firm, and I started my divorce business, Smarter Divorce Solutions. And I was determined to do a couple of things starting this business. I was determined that I would not use debt 
that I would only invest money when I was making it. And so I, I joke with my, my, tra- my coaching clients that, you know, you have to have one of two things when you're going to start this divorce niche practice, money or time. And I had time <laughs> because I had just this little core family of clients that followed me and took me about an hour and a half a day. So I learned how to build my own website and I learned about SEO and I learned about social media. And, you know, and this was all back in 2011 and I did it all myself. I built everything myself. And rather than pay for any marketing, I was a networking maniac. I mean, I was out and about in this valley three days a week, four days a week. And then I would pick two people at each event to go have lunch or coffee or happy hour with. And I did that in a rabid way for six months. And there is actual science on networking effectiveness that someone has to see you or have an interaction with you six times before they actually will take you seriously and actually refer you business. And it was no coincidence at all that I started that all January of 2012. No clients, no clients, no clients, no clients. And in August of that year, I got five cases in one month. So monthly meetings, like six, six, six meetings, six interactions, six months. Yep. Yep. All these different networking groups. And so my first five clients, it was two individuals that had attorneys and were doing the litigation process. It was two individuals that were trying to do a do-it-yourself divorce and they were the non-CFO spouses saying, help me, I don't know what he's proposing. And a couple, a couple that showed up together all by themselves. And the first two clients that had attorneys, my very first two cases went all the way to trial and I had to do expert witness testimony on my very first case. It was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. And- ask, do you go through the like... I'm your expert witness. You do realize, like, I started this, like, nine months ago. Right? Well, but here's the great thing, and this is what I have to remind people of. Yeah, you're new at the divorce niche, but I'd been a financial advisor for 22 years. Mm. And what any advisor has to understand that considers pivoting into a niche like this is it's your your lifetime of experience that matters, not the specialized knowledge of your little niche. Your little niche becomes an on-the-job learning situation where every single client that shows up is going to have a different situation and different craziness. And Google is your friend, and you're going to learn something new every single case. And your, your knowledge grows and it expands and it changes. And the, then within about one year later, 18 months, so a total of 18 months from the time I started, I was averaging three to five cases every month, generating $100,000 a year in divorce revenue and getting 30 qualified prospects in front of me that I could convert over to the wealth side of the practice. Now, I will confess, I did a really, really stupid, 
stupid thing when I started my business because I didn't have the confidence. And there there weren't any coaches around then. There wasn't anybody doing advanced training for the CDFA, for this niche. I deliberately marketed down, not to my target client. I marketed and took clients that didn't really have any assets to manage, didn't really have that much complicated stuff going on because I just felt like I needed to learn. So the first couple of years, I did a lot of divorce work, but I didn't really convert much of it over to the wealth side. But I grew my confidence. I grew my confidence. So about by 2014, 15, I started really dialing in on the niche, the target market that was going to build the success. So, all right. So I have more questions about like how, how it evolved, but take me back for a moment to the the beginning as you're doing this like onslaught of networking to try to get activity uh, uh, going initially, like just literally, wh- where did you go? Like what what organization or organizations were you networking at? Who yeah. were you targeting? So the interesting thing about divorce as a niche is every one of us knows somebody, right? I mean, it's so pervasive. Yeah. So instead of thinking about trying to get in front of people getting divorces, I thought about trying to get in front of their friends. And as a female advisor in this market, you know, I'm sorry, if you're a female in this market, you better be niche marketing to women because there's not very many of us and the women are looking for you. So I knew I wanted to really market to those non-CFO spouse females who had delegated the, the finances to their spouse, found themselves faced with divorce now and were horrified that they didn't even know what they had. So mm. with that as my target demographic, my target market, I thought, well, of course, I'm going to go to the women's business organizations. So I went to NABO, the National Association of Women Business Owners. I joined the Chamber Group. I went to eWomen. I went so every professional women's group I could find, I would get in front of. So not necessarily going to like a, a, a divorce, recent divorcees networking group or like a you know yeah nope uh, marital trouble support group. Hey, if you decide to get divorced, give me a call. You, you were just in circles that had women. I guess conceivably who may go through a divorce themselves at some point, but failing that, like building a reputation in organizations with a lot of women because that means they're likely to have uh they're likely to be able to refer their friends. Someone in their friends and family circle is going through a divorce and will be a non the non-financial spouse, non-CFO spouse as you put it, of the of the couple. And so they're going to say something to their friend and their friend is going to say like, Oh my gosh, I met this woman named Nancy at a networking meeting. Like she does what you need. You should give her a call. Exactly. And if you know anything about networking and referral marketing, women talk, right? Women, there's a thing about women that we want to connect people. We are natural born connectors. And so I, I, the, my biggest victory, and I, I, this, was, this was my goal, and in 2014, it happened. Every 
every woman that would come to me that for their initial consultation, I would always ask, well, how, how did you find out about me? And this woman said, I went to a jewelry party, one of those home parties, you know, that we women like yeah. to do. Went to a jewelry party last week and I was sitting on the sofa. We were all just visiting and I was sitting on the sofa and I was telling the woman next to me that I thought I was going to be facing divorce. The host of the party, another woman across the room, and the woman I sat next to, none of which had met each other before that night, in unison all said, you need to call Nancy. And I just went, yes, I have arrived. (laughs) So how did you like just introduce yourself, position yourself out there as you're going to these networking parties to to try to do this. I mean, I'm, I'm going to presume like, oh, hi, I'm Nancy. Do you know anyone who's getting divorced? It's probably a little too uh, uh, out there. But like, how were you setting yourself up this way? It's like, what were you saying to introduce and explain yourself? Right, right. Well, I never again introduced myself as a financial advisor. Uh, first, well, what I- Well, that's good. Then people don't take two steps back. So Right, exactly. So- I did in in a kind of a casual networking environment. I would say, well, uh, I I am a financial advisor, but I specialize in divorce. And they would go, what? Really? So that's kind of the casual thing. And then we could start the conversation. But I had a beautiful little elevator pitch that I would use. You know, if you go to like a BNI group and everybody goes around and has their 30 seconds to introduce themselves. Do you remember what it is? Of of course I did. Of course I did. You probably said it a few times over the years. I would say, I would stand up and I'd say, my name is Nancy Hetrick. And I provide individuals and couples with a kinder, gentler, much more affordable divorce and everybody would crack up laughing and the heads would pop up and they'd be like what and then everybody's heard the story of divorces that are entirely the not kind not gentle and not affordable so like you have distinguished on that out of the gate yes exactly exactly and then i would tell my horror story about my divorce and you know, that what happened with the properties and that I am now on a mission to make sure that these things don't happen to our other, our other friends. And I was always really careful. I never, I never excluded men in my marketing. I always had languaging and things that will appeal to women, but I never have come out overtly and said, I only work with women. Now, there are some divorce financial planners out there that do that. I, I didn't want to do that. And so I, I had, you know, I wanted men, if they wanted to come in as a couple, I wanted to make sure the men felt really comfortable with that as well. So I had a lot of men that were the non-CFO spouse show up. One guy was a railroad engineer and his wife was a CPA and he was horrified. He hadn't paid a bill in 30 years. Yeah. And one of our favorites was, um, we called him Dr. Brad, the veterinarian. We, oh my gosh, he just was wonderful. And, but non-CFO spouse and was terrified. So it, it, it is, women do tend to be the majority that will go out and look for information first, but certainly not always. So, and so I'm struck by this, just, you just go out and introduce like, I, I provide individuals and couples with a kinder, gentler, much more affordable divorce. Like, just let it 
there it is. Like if you're, if you know someone who's going through a divorce and maybe nervous that it's going to be a train wreck, like now I know who to call. Yeah. And I would actually say to them, I would say, please do me a favor. And if you know anyone thinking about divorce, please have them talk to me before they talk to anyone else. Because, mm. and then I would tell a little, I'd put a little bit of fear out there. I'd be like, because as soon as they tell their, I said, tell them, have them talk to me before they tell their spouse. Because once they tell their spouse, stuff can start disappearing. So have them come talk to mm. me and I will help them get ready. I'll help them get prepared. And that was really compelling. So you said is like, as things got going, it's six months of doing the elevator speech at the meetings and showing up six times. And then all of a sudden people are like, all right, she's legit. She's sticking around. You get through that proverbial no like and trust barrier. And then all of a sudden, uh, I think you said like five cases come in, in the in the seventh month after you get through the first six. So just for those of us who are not familiar with this space at all, just like you got five cases or like you get a case. Like, what does that mean? What do you, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Well, and let, let me tell you that that month was horrifying because I had put every ounce of my energy and effort into marketing and networking. I had no idea. I had no, I had no retainer agreements. I had no paperwork. I, oh, no. I, I, I was totally not ready. Someone, I started marketing and then people wanted to engage me. I'm like, oh, I don't have an engagement letter yet. Exactly. I was like, oh my God, now what am I going to do? So I begged, borrowed. Great moment school. just for anybody who's like, you know, gotten started or remembering back to their early years. Like, this is normal. This is how it goes. Like, yep. like so, oh, I should probably figure out how to do that now that someone actually wants it. Right, exactly, exactly. So I think what is so typical with with entrepreneurs is you know you jump off, jump off that cliff and you build the parachute on the way down uh -huh. and it just it just uh -huh. works. You figure it out. So the engagement looks typically you have an initial consultation where you identify you know risks. What are and and I have a beautiful recipe for the initial consultation where it's you know what is if you could look back on this five years from now. What would you like to be able to say about how you went through this process? And what are the risks and barriers that might make that not possible? And you're really just doing that active listening and then paraphrasing it back to them. Here's what I hear you saying. Here's what I hear you saying. And, and there is a point in there at which I'm kind of getting that basic financial planning information. You know, tell me about your house. Tell me about your kids. Tell me about your jobs. And so I get kind of a picture of what the financial situation looks like so that then I can say, well, here's the concerns I have for you. You mentioned that your spouse works at Intel. Well, I can tell you right now that Intel has restricted stock units and they also have a pension. So that's going to need to be valued. And let me talk to you about the rules around those things. And mm -hmm. if you don't have someone like me involved, chances are they're going to miss this and they're going to miss this and they're going to miss this. So here's how I can bring value to what's going on. And then let's talk about how we could work together. Now, in the beginning, because I wasn't trained as a mediator and I wasn't comfortable calling myself a mediator for heaven's sake, but then the silly couples kept showing up and I, and they were wonderful, wonderful to work with. And so I called myself a settlement facilitator. <laughs> I was totally doing mediation. I just didn't want to call it that. So, but once we have that initial consult, they say, yes, help us figure this out. Then I, Wait, let me, 
Let me pause you there for a moment, though. Just sure. as I'm just trying to process, like, as you said, this initial consultation, it's it's about identifying risks. And just, I hear that from my financial advisor lens. I'm like, well, risk of death, we need life insurance, like risk you could get sick, health insurance, long-term care. Like, you're in a different realm of risks, though. Your, your risks here, these are like place, places where you get a really bad divorce outcome because you, because of things that can go wrong that you can lose out on if you don't know what to negotiate or defend. So like there's a pension. Are we going to know how to split that properly or how to value that properly? There's, I guess there's rental real estate with mortgages. Let's make sure we know how the refis are going to work. Been there, done that. So like it's, it's those kinds of things when you talk about this, because you're yeah. essentially trying to get to here are the places where your divorce may go haywire if you don't have an expert like me to help you go through it. Yeah, exactly. Those kinds of risks and education for the client that, uh, by the way, your attorney doesn't know squat about finance. And that, Michael, I got to tell you, that was the rudest awakening for me getting into this field is having an attorney ask me how they should argue their case. And I mean, I couldn't believe I was sitting in front of 15-year marriage and family law attorneys who didn't know the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. And so let, making sure the client understands you, if, if you're going to use lawyers, they're there to get you through the legal process. They're not there to give you financial guidance, they're going to come to you and say, well, what do you want? What do you want to ask for? And, you know, these poor non-CFO spouses are like, what do you mean? I mean, I, I, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. You're supposed to tell me what I need. And so it's just a very, the family law system is really, I kind of one of my little soapboxes I get on is in the late 70s, early 80s, when no-fault divorce became ubiquitous in the United States, in my opinion, we made a critical error. We decided to use a criminal system to deal with a family issue. And it's mm. ridiculous. I've never known someone to go all the way through a litigated divorce without coming out the other end feeling punished and bruised and battered. And it's just makes no sense to me at all, except for the f- 10% of human beings that are high conflict personalities that just simply will not participate in any other option. Right. Those are out there. I think that's a powerful framing though, that just the lawyers are there to get you through the legal process, which is amplified by the fact that we put it through the criminal legal system. So, you know, they'll fight for whatever you want them to fight for because that's what they do. Which is not terribly helpful if you don't even know what you want or what you need or what to ask for or what's appropriate beyond. It's pretty easy to get into a frame of like, well, get me as much as you can. And now we're in a contentious divorce. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really interesting to me too, because the I learned after working in this field for a while and, and starting to get quite friendly with attorneys, their code of ethics requires not that they get you a fair settlement, that they get you the best possible settlement they can get you, which means if they're going to get you more 
than the law would uh, would award you, then they have to take it from the other person. So mm-hmm. it it just inherently puts the attorneys in a position where they have to be adversarial or they're not abiding by their code of ethics. It's interesting. It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. So initial meeting is an initial consultation. You're identifying risks here. Yeah, I guess you're, you're fact-finding just to understand their circumstances, but you're identifying risks because this is just a I need to show how your divorce may go off the rails if you just use the lawyer or you DIY it because there are financial and other nuances that just takes a person with my expertise and specialization to be able to help you through to make sure it goes well. But it's never that way, right? We can't be, we have to stop as financial advisors, we have to stop being data dumpers, right? People don't care what you do and how you do it. They only care what that you're going to relieve my pain. So the whole point of that consult for me is to shine the light on what they didn't know they didn't know. Like they had no idea that these things were going to have to be discussed. So now they know I can't do this alone because you just talked about four things that I never would have even known to ask the question. And, and I can do that pretty much on every single initial consultation, talk about separate property rules and spousal maintenance and, you know, doing some reality checking and things like that. So they realize in that first meeting, ooh, there's a lot more to this than I thought. And that becomes the, the compelling argument. So I never am, I never sell myself. I don't want to ever sell someone on getting a divorce. What I do at the end of the consultation is I say, how would you like to proceed from here? And this is can be an incredibly long sales cycle because it's typically about two years from the time that someone first thinks they might be headed for a divorce to the time they pull the trigger on it. And I, I laugh because I just finalized a case in February that had come to talk to me for the very first time in 2013. <laughs> so and two years because you're because you're not just having them come when they're like filing for divorce. The whole point is you're encouraging like no 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 talk to me before you just tell your spouse talk to me before you really initiate yeah. this so that you can help right protect yourself. It's just you you're you're talking to people that are still in the. I'm thinking about getting divorced, but I'm trying to make sure I understand my issues and options. Like you're getting them at that stage. Exactly. It may take two years until they actually go through. Yep. It's exactly. And I don't stop following up. We have part of our culture, part of our, our uh, values of who we are here as a company is the minute somebody walks through our door or we pick up that phone, we just became your new best friend. We're your shoulder to lean on. We are, we're the person you can call when every other professional is going to charge you by the minute. And we're not going to do that. And I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to help you get through this. Now, imagine once I've done that with somebody through one of the most traumatic times of their lives, who else do you think they're going to want to be with as their financial advisor? Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because I get I get CFPs ask me all the time, well, okay, so what's the trick to making sure that they convert over and stay with you for the financial planning? I was like, I, there is not one. 
halfway through your divorce engagement, they're going to start saying, you're going to stay with me, right? You're not going to, you're not going to kick me to the curb, right? So, I mean, it's just such a natural transition that they can't imagine doing anything else. So, so you go through this initial consultation. So then what, what comes next as you're like getting, getting a case, getting an engagement? Yeah. Document gathering. I want to see every document. And one of the other things I was horrified by, we in in Arizona and in most states, frankly, there's a lot of attorney mediators. I kind of think of them as your reformed family law attorneys where they're like, I'm tired of the courtroom. I want to give people better outcomes. And they start offering what we call transformative mediation, which is mediation where everybody's in the same room together and we're just, we're working it out, right? Which is different than evaluative mediation, which if you're in the state of Texas is the only kind of mediation that happens where you have a lawyer and a client in one room, the other client and their lawyer in another room, and the the mediator, air quotes, goes back and forth, who's usually just another lawyer or you know a, a retired judge, and it's not really let's work it out. It's it's an orchestrated I'm, negotiation. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna haggle you down to the point that you find a midpoint that everybody isn't happy with, which means we all made compromises. Now let's sign it. Move on. Exactly, exactly. And for to, in my opinion, that's not mediation. But what I was gonna say is that the horror that I found. There's all these attorney mediators out there. They do not gather documents. They give their client an Excel spreadsheet and say, here, fill in what you have. Bank accounts, retirement accounts. Now, every one of you financial planners out there, how many clients do you have that have no idea that they have a Roth component to their 401k? Clients don't know what they have. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at tax returns. I'm looking at brokerage statements. I'm looking at bank account statements. I'm looking at mortgage stuff, loan documents, everything for the last few years. And picking out what's missing. And there's always stuff missing. They think they've they've given me everything. Um, I make them pull credit reports. So I can go through and say, okay, there's this credit card that has a balance. Nobody told me about this one. Oh, I forgot about that. That card is in the safe. And it's not usually, nobody's hiding anything. They don't know what they have. And what's really shocking to me is the more money they have, the worse they are at knowing what they have. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the worst couple I ever had had an $18 million net worth. They had a million-dollar account they had forgotten about. <laughs> I'm like, I want to nice, be in nice that problem. problem. <laughs> like, nice problem to have. <laughs> yeah, right? But so the idea that these attorneys were doing this mediation and just never looking at documents was just shocking to me. So anyway, sure. gather documents do all my analysis. There's actually a very customized divorce financial planning software um, that is called Family Law Software, and it's kind of the standard for this business. There are some competitors starting to come, but they're not nearly as robust. The, The gentleman that created that software created the original tax software that was sold to H&R Block. So he's like a MIT, 
you know, crazy genius, shout out Dan Kane. And uh, it's the software's amazing. It's really amazing. It takes all the intricacies of financial planning and combines them with all of the intricacies of divorce so that I can do 20 year, you know, cash flow net worth projections for each party individually. We can sit together and we can say, well, what would it look like if we did this? What would it look like if we did that? And so, really, is takes that same financial planning skill that we already have and just applies it to somebody, you know, looking at a a new next chapter, new reality and how we can optimize for it, determine how much support they need or not need, you know, what does the ramp up look like if someone's going to go back to work, all of those, those great things. You were just going to ask, like when you say, I do my analysis, I mean, just what does that mean? Like, what are you... What are you analyzing? Yeah. So I'm going through every document and entering the data into the family, into the, the, the financial planning software. And I'm looking at, well, if I'm a neutral, if I'm working with both parties, and, and actually it's true even if I'm an advocate, I'm spending time with that person up front. To, what are their goals? You know, if you could have your ideal and perfect future, what do you want it to look like? Do you want the house or is it is it too big and you'd rather do something else? And what does that look like? And, you know, okay, maybe you're only working part-time now and I'm going to have to have a hard conversation with you about the realities of spousal maintenance, Arizona, because it's really ugly. And, you know, so if we think about opportunities that you might have to be able to make more money, I, I love asking questions like, you know, when you were in high school, what did you dream about wanting to do? And what if we got back to that? And and I kind of coach these people that divorce can be a time of amazing transformation if you just let it be. Doesn't always have to be a horrible, vicious end. It can be a real transformative period where you get to be a whole new version of yourself and and recreate a future that lines up more with, you know, what brings you joy. So Similar to how we may do financial planning projections in a, I'll call it like a traditional context, just you're getting some understanding of goals and how they want their financial life to look like with perhaps a little more near to intermediate term changes, right? A lot of us like, tell me what you want retirement to be like in 30 years, but you're dealing with a lot more of are we going to wind down the house in 12 months? Are you going to change your work situation in six to 18 months? Because like, there's a lot of change and flux yes. coming, coming off of this. So you're doing the divorce equivalent of a financial plan of just literally like, what were your goals? And then like, it's like, can we make the math work? Or like, how do we carve up the assets to try to make the math work? And one or, of the things I always or say your is, expectations are unrealistic. Let's talk about what you can do. Yes, all of the above. And my specialty and what I love to teach and train is creative settlement options. So we're doing, I mean, I can recommend things to people that would never fly in a courtroom. Right now, I have a lot of couples that are going to continue to own a home together because for one of them to refinance would be idiotic. We have a 2.4% mortgage and we got to go get a 7.5% mortgage. Right. Well, that doesn't help anybody, right? And there's an IRS rule that says after divorce, if if you continue to own the home jointly 
And as long as it a transaction happens within six years, the out spouse gets credit for having lived there even though they haven't. So they can sell a home and split the proceeds later for up to six years, and they can each take their $250,000 primary home exemption so we can avoid the capital gains tax. So that's the kind of creative stuff we're trying to do. I do a lot of that if we've got, you know, kids that are in the second year of high school. Well, let's leave them where they're at till they graduate. Then we'll sell the house. And the beauty of that, too, is for the out spouse, if the in spouse is responsible for making the mortgage payment, it doesn't impact their ability to go get a new mortgage on their own house. Mm. So that's the kind of creative stuff I'm looking at is how can we maximize what you both get? So tax creativity. If I've got a really, really high wage earner and the other spouse, you know, maybe is a wage earner, but never going to be in the income bracket that the other spouse is, well, let's give that spouse all the retirement assets and give all the home equity to the other spouse. Now we got money you both get to keep because we're not going to give it to Uncle Sam, that kind of stuff. So, So help me understand what this is, I guess, building up to, and maybe it varies a little bit by the the nature of the engagement. like So you you do this analysis, I guess just what comes next after you do the analysis? Where are we in the divorce process? Like what's the outcome? It, it, of- does, it depends on the kind of an engagement. But so if, if it's a case that, you know, the couple is working with me, then we schedule a two-hour property division meeting where I, in essence, print out the plan and we walk through it step by step and I, I give them all my rationale and reasoning and I let them know that, hey, this is just a place we can start and everything is up for negotiation and we just walk through the settlement and then we start having a conversation about support and I'm kind of lucky because here in Arizona, we have certified legal document preparers. So you do not need an attorney to get a divorce in Arizona. And so from day one, I partnered with another certified legal document preparer so that when I we reached all the agreements with my clients, I could write it all up in, you know, just a summary of meetings or you know, memorandum of understanding with the final property division, hand it over to the legal document preparer to do all the legal docs. And I I evolved to this, but I've become a one-stop shop where everything happens in-house. We courier the documents to the courthouse. Clients never have to go have a hearing. So it it genuinely is a seamless out-of-court process. And I just built the team to be able to, to walk through every step of the process. Now, if I'm advocating with a client and they're working with an attorney, then we're really having that same meeting, but it's with me, the client, and the attorney. And then the attorney is probably going to say, okay, could you run it with this much support? Run it with this much support and switch that asset around. So then they'll have me create a bunch of multiple scenarios. And that will be used in their evaluative style mediation or in just you know putting settlement proposals back and forth between the couple. So at what point did you sign an, 
an engagement here? I'm assuming that's just after the initial consultation, if they say they want to move forward, yes, the divorce is happening, and Nancy, I want you to help me, Like that's when some some kind of engagement letter gets signed, and then document gathering and data gathering began after after you signed an engagement. Exactly correct, and there is a the as a CDFA holder, the code of ethics does provide that I cannot be someone's financial advisor and divorce planner at the same time. So there has to be a clear delineation. The divorce, my role as their divorce financial planner has to be formally ended before I can consider them a prospect on the wealth side. So if they ask me questions, and they will during the divorce engagement, they'll say, well, but if I get that, then how are we going to invest that? And the, the simple answer always is, we will get to that part later. Not That's not what we're doing now. We'll get to that later. So, so how do you charge for an engagement like this, this, this thing that you're describing yeah. um, with the, the data gathering and then the analysis work and families law software and then the, the property division meeting? Like how, how do you charge for this? Yeah. The vast majority of practitioners will bill hourly. Um, and I learned the hard way to only take, to take retainers. There's a there's a, a, a an interesting thing that happens when you know when somebody gets through their divorce, they are mentally moving on. They're moving, they're shifting, they're doing a lot of different things, and it's not that they don't want to pay you. It's that their life is in shambles, and I do not want to waste my time doing collections. So I. Uh, if in an hourly engagement, which would be where I'm working with one client, then I always take like a 10-hour retainer up front. And the hourly rates for CDFAs range anywhere from $200 an hour to as much as $600 an hour, depending on your the time that you've been doing it and the market that you're in, um, what the going rate is. In on average, we try to price ourselves a little higher than the associate attorneys and a little bit low, lower than any partner attorneys, but about the same rate too as whatever a CPA in your market would charge per hour. So that's kind of what I advise people. When I'm working with a couple though, I have gone to flat fees. So I do flat fee work because frankly, I've been doing it so long that I'm really good at it. And I can do things really fast. And so it got to the point where I just I couldn't raise my hourly rate high enough to to make it make sense. And so I just went to a flat fee and clients love it. They love knowing up front this is what it's gonna cost. And what's a typical flat fee? Um, I do a value-based flat fee. So the reality is the more money they have, the more money I'm going to save them and the more value I'm going to bring to the table. So if their net worth is up to a million dollars, then it's a flat fee of 5,000. One to two million is 7,500. And two to four million is 10,000. And over that is negotiable. Okay. And that's our full mediation engagement. But then I do have add-on fees. Like if you have a rental property, that's an extra 1,500 bucks because that's a whole extra set of of analysis. If I have to do a separate property tracing, 
there's an extra charge for that. If you have a business that you want me to analyze, there's an extra charge for that. So that's kind of how we build it. And so when you do this on an hourly basis, so I guess some of these numbers may be small. I mean, if you're a couple hundred dollars an hour and you're you're billing a 10-hour retainer up front, like those may be more in the two to $4,000 engagement level. No, because when you're billing hourly, if the client is working with an attorney, that thing can stretch on and on and on and on. And so a 10-hour engagement can just as easily become a 50-hour engagement. And the initial retainer is just the beginning. And and from the I guess the pure business end, like do you have this full, I know as I think of it like lawyer style retainer, like there's an escrow account and you apply bills against an escrow account and you have to manage to that? Like, do you have to deal with all those layers or is this just a little bit more informal? Like I'm going to bill you for two thousand. You know, I charge three hundred dollars an hour. I'm going to bill you three thousand dollars for ten hours up front, and I will refund you whatever we end up not using. Thank goodness, the latter. Okay. Yeah, it's only the bar association that requires all of that stuff for attorneys. So, for, so what I tell clients is, look, I know, I know, I'm telling you that it's an hourly rate, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't bill like an attorney. I'm not going to bill you for every email. I'm not going to bill you for every phone call. I'm going to bill you when I'm putting meaningful work in on your case. So rest assured that, you know, it's not going to be like your attorney. Um, And then we have, there's another piece of wonderful software for time billing that's actually created for attorneys, but where I can, we log our time and then they get statements and they can see exactly, you know, what we were doing when. And what tool do you use for that? It's a software called Bill for Time, Bill and the number four, billfortime.com. And it's designed for attorneys to track their time expenses, the client uh, accounting records, and uh, produce invoices and, and all of that. So it's pretty effective. So so you build up around this uh, uh, model and so just am I thinking about it right that um you know like when you talk about getting you know a cases a case per month multiple cases per month like these are kind of 4 or 5000 dollars per engagement on average like yes simple yeah. ones are smaller some crazy one is like 10x that because the lawyers go at it and you get dragged into a 50 hour engagement but Sounds like like the typical work is a like it's a five thousand dollar engagement, little yeah. smaller for simple ones, little bigger for when there's more dollars at stake. Yep, that's an absolutely fair um, estimate. Okay. And yeah. so, and so, is that just become the ongoing work and business model for folks that do this? I, mean, I think you'd said after after eighteen months, you were getting like three to five cases a month ongoing because yeah. you built your your reputation, you built your network. And so at that point, it's a like, okay, so I'm now doing um, uh, fifteen dollars to $25,000 a month in divorce fees. For yeah, except that at that work. point, at that point, you're insane right now. Because now every single person that has used me is now telling all their friends and family about me 
when they know anyone getting a divorce. So literally- It's like, so unfortunately it starts to work. Oh my gosh. And it's so, I got to the point where it's like, all right, I, I have to hire because you will, you know, as you grow anything, if it gets successful, you will hit the wall. You'll be, right, right, you know, right. you'll be working 12, 13, 14 hours a day trying to keep up. And, and then of course, if you're doing all the client work, you stop doing the marketing that got you the clients in the first place. And so then you get on this roller coaster of, of, you know, giant revenue and then nothing and then giant revenue and then nothing. And, and so there it's, it's a very delicate balance and hiring is probably one of the most challenging decisions that I find people, people don't want to make the advisors that I work with. It's horrifying to them to commit to paying someone a salary. Because it feels like that's going to come right out of your own pocket. And it's a really difficult mindset to get around because you're holding yourself back. You will never be able to grow beyond your own capabilities until you get all the stuff off of your plate that you shouldn't be doing. And I had a business coach that that said, you know, if you want to make $250,000 a year, then Take that divided by 2,000 hours and what's the hourly rate? And whatever that hourly rate is that you want to make, anything you can pay someone else to do for less than that, you should be paying someone else to do. As long as you then use that time to do the one thing that you're really good at. So I I made the leap. I hired a full-time admin and that really helped to get, get some capacity and but i had to i stopped marketing for 4 years because the refer it had become a 100% referral business very very quickly and i struggled to keep up so i i ended up growing from the my first my just having one admin fast forward we grew and grew and grew and at the peak i had eight full-time employees had a paralegal on staff i had another cdfa on staff i had a mediator on staff and um full-time admin and then i had a program manager for my training department and we were approaching a million dollars a year in revenue and i was miserable i hated it i had gotten to the point where just felt like I was swimming all the time and never, it happened never, so never had quickly. More, never had more that money. Was, that was my goal when I started is I said, I want to run a business that's going to run without me if I want it to. And at that point, I was not really doing very many divorce cases at all. My, my staff was, was doing most of the divorce work and I had a full-time operations person on the financial advising side to keep that ship running right. And and I was just swimming, and it took a while for me to notice it. But when I quit doing the divorce cases myself, over a three-year period, the revenue dropped in half. And by the, by the end of 2021, the revenue on the divorce side was less than half of the salary that I was paying the two people to do it. And I was on my fourth secession advisor because I was trying to hire associate advisors that I could start grooming to be the secession plan on my wealth practice. And it was a revolving door of the wrong people, the wrong people, the wrong people. And 
I just stopped and I was just like, I am beating my head against a brick wall. The the universe is telling me I got to do something different because the divorce business is dying. I can't get anybody to help me on the wealth side. And now what started as a $20 million book is a $65 million book that I can barely keep my hands around. And I spend every night feeling guilty because I know I'm not giving those wealth clients the service that they, they deserve. And I, I had a major come to Jesus moment. I, I fired six of my employees and I contacted two female financial advisors in town that I had known for about 10 years that were business partners. And I said, guys, I'm having some growing pains. And I wondered if you'd like to go to lunch. Three months later, they were buying out my practice. And we actually positioned it as a merger. And I'm their senior divorce specialist. Did a a one-year transition with the wealth clients. And only one client did not stay. So probably one of the most successful transitions of a wealth practice that's ever happened. And my divorce revenue in one year went from 75 grand to $250,000 last year. And I am back in the trenches doing the divorce work. And I forgot how much I love it. And I forgot how good I am at it. So Nancy, I'm, I'm like fascinated by this like journey, this roller coaster journey of it. So I, I just I want to make sure I understand. So the so like you get going in the divorce niche, and it's going well, and then it's going better. So you hire an admin, and then like you hire a paralegal and a mediator and another CDFA to help, and like keep keep adding people because all these clients are coming in because we're serving them well, and it's growing, and getting bigger, and it's and it's ramping up. Except you need a lot of people, and so you get to this point of it's a million dollars of revenue. Uh, you've the staff mostly does it, but you're miserable. Yep. So I understand that. Mo- I guess like where was your time going at that point? Like what were you doing that's that's not happy and fun anymore in the midst of all this? Managing humans, uh, okay. which. I I have a very high personal bar of excellence for myself. And I learned that when you try to impose that on other people, they kind of don't like that that much. <laughs> and, and so that was a big part of it. And but then just the the CEO duties of keeping a business that size running, all the different, you know, regulatory items and paperwork and we had started doing the legal documents and and so there was just a lot of just yuck and at the same time I had also started my training business I had started teaching and training other CDFA holders which is really where my heart is I I did not go to school to become a financial person I went to school to be a teacher and that's my happiest place on the planet is up in front of a classroom, up in front of a, a group. Mm. Of people. And so as we grew, what occurred to me too is when you do this work, there's only so much one person is capable of doing. Right, and if you're right. going to have a financial firm at the same time, you're going to really max out at about three cases a month. 
And if you're going to do more than that, then you have to start to build this infrastructure, which I was attempting to do and was just had to double check and manage everything. And I realized also I made a critical error in the beginning. When you first start to hire people, when you're having rapid growth, you will make the mistake of hiring people to complete a task. So there'll be task people. I need somebody who can make appointments for me. So I'm going to get this low-end receptionist. And then I need somebody who can do all the paperwork for me on the new accounts. So uh, that can be a low-level person. And so then what happens is you get through phase one of your growth and you're surrounded by a bunch of task people. And now I need leaders. I need leaders that can lead this thing so that I'm not having to do the supervision of every Mm -hmm. single task. And it's not the same people. And so that's where I had to just realize that the same people that had helped me grow were not the same ones that were going to help me lead this company forward. And I, you know, fired five people at low salaries and got two people at high salaries who can be self-driven and lead their own world. And I don't have to double check everything they do. And so that was part of this change when you, when you hit the wall to let a whole bunch of people go was to say like, I'm going to, I'm going to let go a lot of my admin folks and then hire fewer people at a much higher level who can still do some of that work, but are much better at self-managing and getting it done and taking initiative on other areas. And two good ones ended up being more effective than five at a lower level. Yes. Once I removed all the noise, I removed all the noise. I got back on the client front lines and so then it just started to soar and, and everything is feels I'm so much happier. Oh my gosh, I'm so much happier. And interestingly, I didn't know if it was going to be possible, but I've I've replaced the revenue that I was getting from my financial firm. Let me put it this way, the profit I was getting from my financial firm. Yeah has been 100% replaced by my divorce practice now. So it, it was absolutely the right thing to do. I'm a much happier person. My employees are much happier people. And you know, like you have more profits with one or two people than you did with a million dollar practice with eight. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I have three full-time employees right now. We One of the things I do do is I, some, some, CFPs that get into this business realize they don't really want to grow it. They don't want to have to market. They don't want to have to grow business. They don't want to have to do a website. So I have a licensing agreement. So there's actually a Smarter Divorce Solutions in Indianapolis, and there's a Smarter Divorce Solutions in Milwaukee, and there's one in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, you know, nothing that ever is going to make me rich, but it helps those people really be successful. And how does it work? Like just because you're getting so much divorce business, you refer it to them. And since this can be done virtually in a Zoom world now, they get to service the clients from wherever they are. Uh, I do a little bit of that with my with a gal in Charlotte. Uh, she's actually going to relocate to Arizona and, and 
ease more into a business partner role with me. Um, but with the others, what has happened is because I've now, I'm now 12 years in to, in a very successful business, now I pay for really good online marketing. And we are, I mean, we, our SEO and our, our footprint on the internet is powerful. So for these other locations, they just become part of our digital marketing. So we're doing their online marketing on their behalf. And they pay me an intellectual property cost every month, very low and affordable. And I get 5% of their revenue. So it, it works for them because then they can focus on what they're really good at and not have to worry about online marketing. Because at the end of the day, just there are people that are Googling for collaborative divorce, low-cost divorce, you know, all of it. Gentle, gentle divorce, whatever the whoever the keywords are that that you found and you've been able to build traction with. Yeah. And divorce financial planning. You know, people are looking for financial experts in divorce. And you pretty much can't Google that in any of my target zip codes without my ads coming up right at the top. And we do, you know, retargeting. Like I love one of my favorite ads is when somebody Googles Phoenix divorce attorney, my ad comes up at the top that says, did you know you don't need attorneys to get a divorce? <laughs> Which nothing against the attorneys, but we need, uh -huh. to, we need to educate the public. I like that. They search Phoenix divorce attorney and you have an ad that says, uh, you don't need it. You don't need an attorney to get a divorce. Yep. And then the ads follow them all over the internet. And we start showing up on Facebook. <laughs> so help me understand as you're building and scaling this divorce practice, what was happening on the wealth side of the business? Um, so I've just told you about all the different irons I had in the fire, right? Okay. Wait till, wait till you hear this. Uh, I also managed my own money. I had my own ETF custom portfolios that I was trading. I mean, this is how insane I am, right? Oh, I can just do everything. And but you know what? It was working. So who and I'm did you good build custom ETF portfolios with on this on the side? Oh no, me. I, I had my own models, my own model portfolios, and I, okay. you know, individual stocks, and because I grew up in. Schwab's private client model where I was the portfolio manager. So I'm a money manager by background, not a salesperson. And so, yeah, I just had been ran it, running my own money. My wealth clients love me. They loved me right up until the moment I said, I'm changing things. And they referred clients to me. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeding people over to the wealth side and I, you know, I was an XYPN advisor for two years because I had to start hiring other advisors. And so I had to right. be full, fully independent. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was just doing it all because why not? I could just do it all. <laughs> Lasted for 10 years, but it was just way too much. And so where did the growth of the wealth practice come from? Was it all divorce? Yes. The segment of divorce clients that got to the end and were like, n n like Nancy, I get to stay, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to presume a lot. Of, you don't even just sell it at that point. Like you've been so deeply involved with their finances ongoing, it's just a brief like. So just to let you know, if we're going to keep working now, I have to move you over to my advisory firm. Here's how it works. We good? Oh, not even that. It's my, the last step of the divorce <laughs> process is the new normal session, and I sit down with them with a checklist of what are the next steps. 
And one of the steps is, okay, you're going to get part of this 401k via Quadro, so we need to open an IRA. Would you like me to help you with that? Yes, as a matter of fact, I would. Okay, great. Now we're just going to open accounts and get everything set up on the on the wealth side. Um, so that it's a pretty smooth transition. It, it, it goes pretty easily. So I'm, I'm struck by the discussion, though. I think you said you went through four prospective successors trying to transition the business. Yeah. So yeah. Tell us more about this succession planning journey. Oh, my God. So I had to stop and realize that the one common denominator here is me. So what the heck am I doing wrong? Well, I was fishing in the wrong pond. I came from a big box, Charles Schwab. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to rescue someone out of the big boxes, just like I felt like I was rescued by going independent. And so I was hiring people from Vanguard, from Fidelity, from Schwab. And what I came to understand is when when most people that work at those big boxes and have been there for some time, they thrive on structure, the structure and the systems and processes that are in place for them. And when I would drop them into my entrepreneurial, fast-paced world where we all have to clean toilets, they were fish out of water. They just couldn't couldn't cope with that kind of an environment. In fact, the last one I had, she said, Nancy, I didn't even know this about myself. I need the box. I like the box. I want to stay in the box. (laughs) So I realized that. So then I realized that the advisor that was the right fit was already an independent advisor. They didn't want to come work for me. They're out there doing it themselves. That's when I started thinking about what if maybe I look at a merger possibility. And that's where the conversation started with with the two women that I know. And it was it was absolutely the right way to do it because I needed someone who has already had the skills of being a successful independent advisor. I'm struck just by this dynamic of you spent what I'm I'm gonna assume is years trying to work with various successors. And then ultimately decided, oh, maybe we should do it as a merger instead. And then three months later, it's all done. I know, right? That's a, that's kind of the way I work in the world. <laughs> I, you know, there's personality tests and things, and I'm a very much a quick start kind of person. But I'm also very high in fact finder and research. So I I do the research. But when the research is done, I, I, I rip it off and move. So, so how did this? merger, I guess just, I'm trying to understand the mechanics of how it got done. I mean, are you still serving your, I think you said it was a $65 million client base? Are you like completely out of that? That's theirs. And you're solely doing divorce work now and you just, you're, you're getting, you're getting or got a payment for the sale of the business. Like as of the actual merger. Yep. As of March 31st, I am my duties to my prior clients are done. They have fully assumed my original practice. And I spoke with we had a one-year transition where I helped the transition along. But I am still an IAR, an investment advisor rep for their firm, so that 
when I hand them a divorce client who now right. needs an advisor, I can get trailers. I can get referral fees. Right. So essentially, you're you're you get you get paid as a solicitor, but rather than Correct. like going through all the solicitor disclosures per se, you're just literally an IAR of their firm. So like yes. you're you're soliciting by definition that you're represented, you're an advisor with their firm. Yep. Yep. And what I've done for the for this business model, this transition also, you know, not every advisor is right for every client. So I actually have solicitor agreements with three other advisors that each have their very unique qualities. So like if I get somebody who's a high risk, wants somebody picking stocks, I've got the perfect advisor for them. If I've got the, you know, the, the younger professional female, I've got the perfect advisor for her. And so I've kind of very carefully chosen my advisor partners so that I, because I kind of have to, if I don't help these people land in the right place, I lose sleep at night, you know, once the, once the divorce is over. And that's actually really hard for me because I get really close to these clients. So out of curiosity, just like, what do you charge or like how did you structure your like solicitor revenue sharing payment i mean like is, is it a one time fee is it a percentage like what what do you find a fair percentage to yeah it's a, the clients you lob up there as it were yeah I, I struggled with that a little bit um the only model that i had to go by was like the models like nerd wallet and wealth ramp and I was on the WealthRamp platform, and if they gave me a client, they were charging me 25% of the fee year one, 15% year two, and 10% in perpetuity. And I thought, well, that's, a, that's an okay place to just start throwing it out there. And I thought about, do you want that, or do you just want a bigger percentage yeah. for like two years? And ultimately, what I landed on, because I my heart, I just want these people to all be taken care of. And so my select advisors, we all just agreed on 10%, 10% in perpetuity. That's it. That's all I want. That's all I need. So, and, and then whatever was left on the wealth business and just that was sold, you you had whatever financial terms were set to that. And like that's correct. A, a separate bucket of money as it were. Yes. And I self-financed that. And um, so I, I financed that for them. So it's a six-year payout deal. Typical, you know, we hired uh, FP Transitions to do the book appraisal and a formal, you know, sale. Interesting. And so just you follow their their process, basically, like FP Transitions did the valuation. You come up with a number based on that. Here's the number, seller finance for six years. Yep. Exactly. And it was nice because I could customize the deal as well. Normally, there would have been a much larger down payment. But because I'm handpicking my successors, I was able to structure the deal in a way that felt really comfortable for them. And I was happy to do that. Which means uh, less. Less, less of an upfront down payment. You're confident the revenue is going to transition. They get more room then to pay 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 you over time from the revenue that they're generating it, it, servicing it and you don't have to do that work anymore you can get back to your happy place and i will tell you now that it's done that year was the most stressful year of my entire life i've never been under that much stress in my life even during my of, divor divorce of doing the sale transition yep, yep it was it was it was 
it was it was a lot. Um, what what because, made that so stressful? Because it was going on at the same time as the employee transitions. So I got new employees. I oh, and I had owned my office condo, and I sold that too. So we're moving new new employees, um, and I'm going to travel to Texas and travel around and see all the clients with the new advisors. And when you're negotiating selling a practice, they started doing their own due diligence and it it became not easy because it was then was discovered mm. is the data that I was putting out that my under underpaid employees were producing was inaccurate. And I had to go back and redo everything. And yeah, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And I'm a person with autoimmune conditions. And so I, I just, I hit the wall. I mean, from a health standpoint, I just, I, poof, it was not good. It was not good. Now, year later, I realized it was the best darn thing I ever did. And it was smart and it was hard. And I would do it all over again in a heartbeat, only I probably would have done it sooner. <laughs> So Nancy, as you look back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about like building your own advisory business? I think what's what has surprised me most is how much stinking fun I've had. I mean, it's really I've really enjoyed it. Um, I am ruined forever. I will never be able to be anyone's employee ever again. <laughs> I believe that I believe the term is unemployable. I am unemployable, absolutely. And I what I didn't I wasn't prepared for how creative it would feel. It's an incredibly creative thing. I I can remember being five years in and having three employees, full-time employees standing in front of me. And I looked around and I looked at all my content and my book that I had published. And I thought, I, I built this. I, I built this from nothing. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome. You know, just having a ball. So tell me more about the low point then on the journey. There were several low points. Um, I, I'm a very, people matter to me. My employees mattered to me. The, my clients really matter to me. In fact, I had a, a business partner when I worked at Charles Schwab who said, no, Nancy, your best quality is also your worst quality. You actually care about these people. And, and, he, and he was right. But so the low points came when I had employees that were dishonest when I had an employee accuse me of being dishonest, because that's like my integrity is one of the highest values that I hold. So those interpersonal dynamics of conflict, it's, we're the, right. I hate conflict. So, oh, let's be a divorce mediator. Great. I was, I was going <laughs> to say, like, for someone who says like they really don't like being in conflict situations, you yeah. picked an interesting niche. Yeah, that's that's the universe's little uh, little sense of humor. That oh, oh yeah, okay. Well, we're going to help you get. We're going to help you deal with that. So that you know that those things have been difficult. Um, feeling like I I might have missed something in the early days 
that disadvantaged a client. I mean, twice I, I had to fall on my sword. I had a couple come back after the fact that said, hey, this thing. And I said, you are absolutely right. Since I worked with you, I have learned about that thing and we can fix it. And you come in here and we're going to fix it. And I'm not going to charge you a penny. And I will were do they that. at least fixable? I mean, yeah. I, in theory, some of those are like, ooh, I don't know if we can fix this. Yeah. It, I didn't know at first, and I had to get a lawyer involved, and we had to basically do an amendment and a different kind of a legal document. But yes, it was fixable. Um, and had it not been, I would have refunded their entire fee, of course, that they had paid me originally. And I would have worked with them to determine an appropriate remedy. I don't know what that would have looked like, but but it was horrifying. It was horrifying to and, me. And I guess like follow on question that domain, like how does ENO insurance work for you, particularly if this is done as an OBA, so your your advisory for me and O coverage presumably doesn't cover it. Like is there separate coverage that you get? Can you get it? Yeah, there is. There is actually and um Markel Cambridge is the only provider in the country that does divorce financial planning ENO specific. And they're amazing and nobody should do this work without having a policy through them. Um and it's not that expensive. It's you know 1200 bucks a year, 1500 depending on how much work you do. Interesting. So Mar- Markel Cambridge is the um uh is the one that's writing that particular version of a, of a policy. Yep, exactly. And it's tough because some of the people that are not doing an OBA, their firm will tell them, oh, no, don't worry about it. You're covered. Yeah. If you have Markel Cambridge review their you know, policies, they'll, they'll poke the holes in it and show you where you're not covered. So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you like 10, 12 years ago as you were getting started down this path? I would have said, don't be afraid. You already know what you need to know. You'll learn the rest as you go. And be willing to be uncomfortable. Be willing to be uncomfortable in your shoes for a few years. And you'll reap all the benefits. Because at the time you weren't comfortable to be uncomfortable? I deliberately did not market to attorneys because I found them so threatening. Mm. And that was just a completely false fear. Once I met attorneys, I was like, oh, they're just people. And they don't know squat about finance. Oh, this will be fun. (laughs) And it was just, you know, we have so many, our, our amygdalas are just desperate. They're just driven to hijack our behavior. And, you know, we don't have any saber-toothed tigers chasing us anymore. So we make up things to be afraid of all day long. And it's almost never anything worth being afraid of. So other advice you would give younger, newer advisors that maybe want to explore the, the divorce niche? Recognize your area of the market. For young advisors, um, I have some young advisors that are actually XY advisors that specialize in young families with children. 
or, you know, one area of divorce that they specifically know about or have personal experience with. Uh, because it can so be difficult. Don't go all things divorce. Like just, right. As you said earlier, like divorce is actually 10 different subdomains within divorce. So get clear on which one in particular you're going after. Right. And the the prerequisite for getting a CEFA credential, you have to be an advisor for at least three years. So it's not something that you take on straight out of the gate, right. unless you're going to partner with somebody like me that can you can bring in as an expert and you're going to be the relationship person or, you know, that kind of thing. But um, it, it, this, is, this is important work. It's really important. And the, the consequences to the clients are so much bigger than just traditional financial planning. And so it's, you have to really understand the gravity and, and make sure that you, you make up your mind that you are going to be the best in your market and you're going to know what needs to be known to help these, these clients. So what comes next for you on this journey? Oh, well, I am, as I mentioned, I, I have a new business partner in Charlotte, South Carolina, North Carolina, who I actually trained in 2017. She's going to relocate here in two years. Um, I love the teaching and training, but I have, I have a concept. The biggest challenge that we face as divorce financial planners is education, public education, and making sure that People getting divorces in this country understand that we are a critical person that has to be part of their team for success. So I would like to create a national directory site of qualified divorce financial planners who are really doing the work and doing it well and create a national voice and national PR and really get this country to wake up because my mission kind of changed. I mean, my mission now is I literally want to change the way that we do divorce in this country. And I, I'm going to need to build an army to do it. And so I've been building the army for about six years now, and it's time that we give that, give that army a voice. Very cool. Very cool. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is, Literally, the word success means very different things to different people. So I feel like you've had a, several of these journeys, like building the divorce business and then retooling and then building the wealth business and selling and exiting. And so you've had a lot of different business successes through this journey. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I don't have to do anything anymore. And so I did put a lot of thought into that of what do I want? And so for me, success has become impact, purpose, and legacy. And that's what I'm striving for. I, I wanna I wanna have an impact. I wanna I wanna wanna matter. You know, I wanna be able to make life better for people that are in pain. And and that feels really good. That's a that's a that's, it gets me up every morning. Very cool. Because the sale of the business means like you don't necessarily need this for nope. for work anymore. Now, now, now we're in the mission stage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.